This is I Spy, the show from foreign policy where spies tell their stories. Trigon didn't want to face torture and execution, which he knew he would get in a bullet in the back of his head if they ever found out about him. And so we decided to provide him with this poison inside a black fountain pen. In the barrel of that pen, we had put a reservoir of poison so he could bite down on it and die, basically. From Foreign Policy, welcome to I Spy, real-life spy stories told by the people who were there. Each week, we feature one former intelligence operative from somewhere around the world describing one operation. I'm Margot Martindale. On today's show, CIA officer Martha Peterson handled one of the most valuable Soviet spies of the Cold War, codename Trigon, until the KGB got wind of the operation. Peterson was a young undercover officer working in the American embassy in Moscow in the mid-70s. She was the first female operations officer assigned to the Soviet Union for the CIA. Peterson begins the story by describing how the CIA recruited Trigon in Bogota, Colombia. The year was 1973. In the mid-70s, the CIA was looking all around the world for Soviet officials who were interested in providing secrets from the Soviet government to the U.S. government. At that time, we had very little um, knowledge about what the Soviets were doing around the world. We would get glimpses, but having a live source was the best way to understand what their plans were. Trigon, whose name was Alexander Ogorodnik, uh, worked in the embassy in Colombia, in Bogota, Colombia, in the Soviet embassy. And we had a telephone tap on the embassy, and we determined through uh, listening over a period of time that he was a Soviet official that colored outside the lines. He was active in the community. He didn't cloister himself like many of the Soviet officials. And he had several girlfriends, including wives of other Soviet officials. So we thought he was probably someone who would be a game to spy for us. So this, the CIA people in Bogota decided to see if one officer could set up a meeting with Trigon. And that's how it started. The two men first met in the Hilton uh, Turkish bath there in Bogota. It was, of course, a place where two men could meet with just towels around their waist so there was no way to carry in a a recorder or anything like that. And it was just the two men in the bathhouse. And it was clear Trigon had thought about the possibility of uh, committing espionage on behalf of the U.S. and was willing to cooperate. 
The motivation of Trigon was to uh, weaken the Soviet system and bring it down from within. So he figured if he could provide us information from the internal workings and problems of the Soviet government, um, that would help to bring it down. The name Trigon is just a name pulled out of a dictionary or a list. It was just a code name he was given. Trigon's job in Bogota Embassy was really the economic situation and policy of the Soviet government to Colombia as well as the rest of Latin America. And he was an authority on economic policy. He was not a spy. He wasn't a KGB officer, but he certainly provided us all kinds of documents we wouldn't have had access to otherwise. Trigon returned to Moscow in 1974. I had been uh, selected for a tour in Moscow um, in the summer of 74 after I finished CIA training. My route to CIA was um, somewhat atypical. I didn't go in through a regular recruiter. I actually didn't even have any idea that I wanted to work for CIA. My husband, John Peterson, had been recruited by the CIA, and our first assignment was to Paxe, Laos. His job was to deploy Lao soldiers to interdict the flow of weapons and soldiers along the Ho Chi Minh Trail to the south. But after 15 months there, he was killed in a helicopter crash, and I returned to the U.S. without any idea of what my future would be. John and I were 27 when he died, and I was kind of at loose ends. I had no clue where my life would go. Friends suggested that I apply for the CIA because I had requisite skills. I had a master's degree. I had four languages, foreign languages that I'd studied, and I had lived overseas. I had lived through a difficult uh, experience as well as a very challenging place to live. And so I did apply for the CIA, and eventually, after they got over uh, my not wanting to be a secretary, they allowed that I could be an officer. And I went into the career trainee program and went to the full operations officers training. And so I got the assignment to Moscow at the time that Trigon returned to Moscow, and he was finding his way. And that's how I came to work with Trigon. I got on an airplane and I flew via Frankfurt to Moscow, Shermetrovo Airport. There was no jetways from the plane, so we had to walk down the long staircase to the tarmac. And I saw what I thought to be sand on the side of the runway, but of course, (laughs) it was snow. As I walked into that airport, I knew that there were people with binoculars looking out at all the passengers, and I just had that feeling that someone was looking at me. 
and I probably had stenciled on my forehead CIA, which of course wasn't the case, but I felt paranoid. I thought they would probably identify me right away. My first few weeks in Moscow were spent just getting to know the city. I bought a car, a little Soviet-made Fiat called a Zhiguli, and I drove all over town. I made a lot of friends in the embassy, other American women who worked for the embassy, not for CIA. I had a cover job in the embassy that I, I really am not free to talk about, and I didn't socialize with anyone in CIA because they didn't want to contaminate me in case uh, one of them was known as CIA. So I really was on my own. And if the KGB was watching me, they could see that I was a young woman who was interested in Moscow and driving around and enjoying new friends that I had made. The KGB aggressively follows all CIA people that they can identify, as well as other officers in the embassy who look like they may be CIA, and they follow them all the time. They wanted to control our contact with Soviet citizens, and that's what they were trying to do. They were trying to identify anyone that we might come in contact with as a possible Soviet citizen who would work for CIA. In my case, I was not followed. The other men in the station, in the CIA station, thought that was really an impossible thing, that they would follow every American. But Soviets didn't use women, and typically we had never sent a single woman to Moscow. And so eventually the, the fellows agreed that the KGB really was not interested in me. After a couple months break-in, I was given the task of delivering a package to Trigon, and they based that on the fact that I could go out without surveillance. So after work was over, I would go to the station area, and the officers had composed a route for me to use for that particular night. I would pick up the package, which was sometimes a log about five or six inches in diameter and about 14 inches long, but inside was hollowed out and stuffed with all the things Trigon would need for his work for us, which meant uh, money and jewelry, but it also meant a large fountain pen with a camera in it and the one-time pads which he used to code and decode messages that he would receive. So I would take this log, I would put it in my bag and change my clothes into very drab gray colors uh, that I could blend in on the street 
and I would drive for two and a half hours into alleys, down into areas where people wouldn't particularly drive at night to make sure I had no surveillance. After that, I would park my car. I would get into the subway system and ride a couple of of stops and then get off and then change to another uh, line and then get off and change to a third or even fourth line. And I then would get out of the subway and walk the rest of the way to the site. The site itself was a lamppost along the side of a one-way road through this park. This lamppost had a number on it, so Trigon would be assured that he had the right lamppost um, when he would go to find our package. He would pick up my log, and he would leave a package for me. That package was often a small milk carton, which was crushed and dirty. Sometimes he put a mustard plaster over the top of it that looked like baby poop or vomit. It was disgusting. And then an hour and a half later, I would return to the site and I would recover the package he left for me. I had a a funny routine when I got back in the car. I would bring along a can of Carlsberg beer because when I got back in the car, I was very thirsty. I was relieved to be back in my car having completed the operation, having his package with me, and I would take that Carlsberg beer, which was often warm, in a can and pop it open and have myself a little party as I would drive back to my apartment. I often didn't get back till midnight, and I always slept with a package under my pillow. Trigon provided to us an amazing amount of secret documents from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. His job was as the kind of gatekeeper for all the documents coming from every embassy in the world. He would look at all the communications from every ambassador from every Soviet embassy around the world. Brasilia, Mexico City, Canada, Germany, Switzerland, South Africa, Riyadh, uh, New Delhi, and Washington, D.C. So we would actually see the Ambassador Dobrynin's reports from his meetings with American officials. And we would know what Dobrynin was reporting to his government about these meetings. This, of course, became critical to our government in knowing what the Soviets were planning in negotiations. We kind of had their game plan before we went to a meeting with uh, Dobrynin. It was a window into the Cold War that we had from no other source. I don't think Trigon spied for money particularly, but it certainly sweetened his interest and um, making his life a little easier. He spent his money on gold jewelry, emerald jewelry for his mother, 
But he had to be very careful with that because he didn't want to appear like he had a lot of money, which um, would have made him stand out. You're listening to I Spy, a production of Foreign Policy. We'll be right back. Welcome back to I Spy. I'm Margot Martindale. We return to Martha Peterson's story about the agent she handled in Moscow, code name Trigon. I probably did eight dead drops, maybe more, but I think there were probably eight or nine, and I felt very responsible for this person because I'd been doing exchanges with him for quite a while. And then one day... Trigon requested a lethal pill, uh, a way of committing suicide. He didn't want to face torture and execution, which he knew he would get in a bullet in the back of his head if they ever found out about him. I was a new officer in CIA, and I had no concept that we would ever give an agent Uh, poison. And I have to tell you, in my 32-year career, I don't think I ever encountered that again. The concern we had about giving Trigon this poison was that he would use it prematurely, that he'd think he was under suspicion when it was really not the case, and that he would end his life um, when it was only a minor event that caused him to be suspicious. But from the highest levels of our government, of the U.S. government, uh, we decided to provide him with this poison inside a black fountain pen. In the barrel of that pen, we had put a reservoir of poison so he could bite down on it and die, basically. After we had communicated for 18 months with Trigon, we received a package in April of 1977, which started to create concern in our minds that something had happened to him. The package in April contained intelligence documents that were a little out of focus or were angled a little bit uh, so we couldn't completely read them. We believed that maybe he was under great stress, which you can understand. Uh, An agent working all by himself in Moscow with no personal contact was facing a lot of stress every day. And we began to worry about his uh, situation. There were some anomalies in the package, even in how he packed it, that seemed to be different from the way he normally did it. Human beings are very consistent in their habits. So we were immediately concerned. Then in June of 77, I went out to deliver a package uh, to him. It was a very rainy night and I went and placed the package down. But when I returned, I saw a white panel truck parked there. No traffic had ever been there. I never saw any truck or anything parked there. 
I'd cross the park and look down at the base of the lamp pole, and there was the package I had left for Trigon. Um, he had not been there that night. I had no explanation for what had happened that night. Um, I just knew that Trigon had not been there and that there was something very suspicious going on. So I went back to the station that night and we were all concerned about the fate of Trigon, whether he was still out there and alive. So we decided we would send a message to him via radio saying that we would deliver a package on the 15th of July on a site on top of a railroad bridge going across the Moscow River. The morning of the 15th of July, I went and worked my job in the embassy, and then at 6 o'clock that night, I went to the station where we discussed my route again and um, how I would manage to uh, get to the site on the bridge. I left work that night with a package. It was a piece of asphalt, smaller than a dinner plate, but probably about two inches thick. And inside, of course, was all the information that Trigon needed. I was absolutely alert to anyone or anything that was around me that looked suspicious but I drove my entire route and saw that I had no surveillance. I walked through the park to the top of the bridge. I took the package out, the piece of asphalt, and pushed it into a small window that was cut in the pillar. I walked out in the middle of the bridge um, when these three men came at me across the street, the middle man saying to the others, fan out, don't let her run. I knew that there was something bad that had happened to Trigon. They grabbed me under my arms and they went to take my purse, which I had across my chest. And as most women will do, we protect our purse. Then there was a van that came from under the bridge and lots of men came piling out of that van. The package that I had placed in the pillar immediately appeared. And it was, of course, at that time I realized this was a typical ambush. They knew the time and place a CIA officer would be there. Well, I have to tell you, I kicked a few of the men at that time because I was so angry. I was angry that something had happened to Trigon and holding me like they did, I kicked out at them. They put me in the van and drove me to Lubyanka. This is Stalin's famous prison where the KGB was housed. When we got there, they took me into a large conference room with a table and a, a group of young men around the room. And I sat very composed as the chief interrogator came in. He was clearly very angry. Uh, they put the package in the middle of the table and began to open it. Um, they took out the jewelry for Trigon's mother, a roll of small rubles, uh, which were in very low denominations, 
all the spy messages to him. And then they went through a protocol of questioning me. I gave no answer. Uh, a State Department officer from the embassy came to sit beside me. He explained to the interrogator, I didn't know anything about what they were talking about. Every American assigned to the embassy in Moscow had diplomatic immunity. That meant that they could not arrest us and put us in jail, because if they did, the FBI in Washington would do equally to their Soviet embassy people there. So at two o'clock in the morning, they said, you may go. I was declared persona non grata the following week, and my job was done. I had lived there for 21 months, and they hadn't known what I was doing. When I came home to Washington, I was met by people at the airport, and they were curious about what happened. I had to explain all of that. But then I was given leave to go home to Florida. This was kind of a replay of what had happened in Laos when my husband was killed. I came home to Florida where my parents, my loving parents, were there to uh, welcome me home and to uh, nurture me as I went through another traumatic departure from a foreign country and an assignment. I had not lost a husband this time, but I had lost an agent who I respected so greatly. And I think deep in my heart, I believe that there may have been something I did wrong. One night when I was out, I hadn't seen surveillance or I had revealed something which uh, caused Trigon's arrest. And I think I, I was in mourning for him. Uh, we didn't have the details yet of what had happened to him, but I was very sad and feeling very responsible and guilty. Eventually, we discovered uh, what had happened to Trigon. The CIA had hired a translator in Bogota, and this translator had worked for the KGB. We discovered he'd been recruited. He, in fact, uh, reported to the KGB that the CIA was interested in someone in Bogota. And it took them three years to determine that it was Trigon. The KGB had put a camera in his apartment, and then one day, he pulled out um, spy gear on his desk. He was looking at it. Uh, they came through the door, and they arrested him. They stripped him down. He said, look, I'll make it easy for you. I will write a full confession. Give me paper, and I will write it out. He started to write with a ballpoint pen, but Soviet ballpoint pens malfunctioned, so he just reached over and picked up his own pen and he started to write and then he put the barrel of the pen in his mouth and bit down on it and he 
became unconscious immediately. They took him to the hospital and he died the next day, which was three weeks before I was arrested. Martha Peterson spent more than three decades in the CIA. She describes her experiences in the book, The Widow Spy, My CIA Journey from the Jungles of Laos to Prison in Moscow. I Spy is a production of Foreign Policy. Our executive editor is Dan Efron. Rob Sachs, Amy McKinnon, and Dan Haverty helped produce today's show. The interview with Peterson was conducted by Dan Efron. If you have tips or suggestions, please write to us, ispy at foreignpolicy.com. If you like the show, please subscribe on your favorite platform and leave us a review. It really helps us out. Foreign Policy subscribers can sign up to get bonus episodes in your podcast app. Go to foreignpolicy.com slash ispy. If you're not a subscriber, you can get access to additional excerpts and interviews by joining iSpy+. For details, go to foreignpolicy.com slash iSpy. You'll also find a link to our Facebook page where you can get the latest updates and hear directly from the producers of iSpy. Next week on the podcast, a civilian spy hatches a plan to entrap a KGB officer. Oleg would give me money, and he, of course, would give me cash. And, you know, dealing with the Russians, one of the most difficult questions is, what do you charge? I can't go to Indeed and see what other other spies are charging, what the rate is and, and market for geography or location. You know, I, I sort of figured that they had money, but if you ask for too much, they just won't be able to do it, so it's not worth it to them. And if you ask for too little, they'll start to ask questions because I'm there about money, I'm doing this for nothing. That doesn't seem right. That's next week on iSpy. I'm Margot Martindale. <laughs>